Hi, I'm Brett from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we're joined by Dr. Sonia Cherry-Paul and Tricia Ibarvia. Dr. Sonia Cherry-Paul's research and work stem from an unyielding commitment to anti-bias and anti-racist pedagogy and practices in K-12 schools. She's an educator, a curriculum developer, and author of several books for teachers, and she has recently adapted Stamped for Kids. A co-founder of Disrupt Techs, Trisha Ibarvia advocates for literacy instruction rooted in equity and liberation through critical literacy. An educator with 20 years of experience, she also has an upcoming book with Heinemann. Sonia and Trisha are offering two virtual institutes for racial equity and literacy focused on racial equity, social justice, and anti-racist pedagogy. Today, Sonia and Trisha discuss Sonia's recent adaptation of Stamp for Kids, the myriad of forces that continue to inhibit the work of anti-racism, and why opportunities like IREL are so important. Here now are Trisha and Sonia. All right. Hi, everyone, um, and welcome to this conversation that I'm so excited about today. Um, my name is Trisha Ibarvia. Um, I am a educator, 20 years in the high school English classroom, um, and I am so excited to be here with my good friend, my dear friend, um, Dr. Sonia Cherry-Paul. Today, we're going to talk about all sorts of things, but mostly we're going to talk about the wonderful um, or talk and celebrate the publication of Stamped for Kids. And we'll also talk a little bit about ourselves and our friendship and who we are and where we are in this moment. Sonia and I are both co-founders for the Institute for Racial Equity in Literacy, which is happening this summer. So I'm sure in the show notes or the website, you will find some more information. And we might talk about that a little bit more here. But otherwise, I am so excited to bring Sonia here. Sonia, welcome. Thank you. I am thrilled to uh, be in conversation with you always, my friend. Yeah, I'm so excited. How's, how was your day today? It was long. It was productive, but but it was long. You know, I'm tired. I am, uh, you know, looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, who is that woman? What's going on with <laughs> <I>? <laughs> yeah. happening? That's how I feel. I've been packing up my classroom and it has been a lot. It's been a lot. Yeah. All right. So let's just jump right in. So tell us the story of Stamped for Kids. I still remember when you told me and you were like, I have some news. And I was so excited. What is it? And, you know, obviously things had been in the works for weeks or months before that. So tell us, share with us, tell us the story of Stamped Kids. How did you come to write this version? Yeah, things were in the works way, 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 way uh, before I was able to actually say anything to you or anyone else. Um, so it's interesting. In in I guess it was 2019, a member of of Little Brown Books team mentioned to me that she had a project that she thought I'd be interested in, but she couldn't talk about it just yet. So I told her, "Sure, keep me in mind." And a few months you know, went by and, and all, all of a sudden there was the announcement that Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism and You by Jason Reynolds was on the way. And I started to put two and two together, right? And I was like, okay, I think the math is mathing on this. <laughs> let, me, let me get back in touch with this contact. And I just said to her, is this the thing you couldn't tell me about just yet? Because if it is, I'm 100% interested in whatever it is that you, you need. And long story short, that's how I came to write an educator's guide for, for Stamped and Little Brown. And, you know, I'm not sure how many educator's guides are 21, 22 pages long, but this one, it really just had to be, right? The book 
is so just so rich and so important in the world of children's books. And then I had the pleasure of hosting uh, a special members NCTE evening and facilitating a conversation with, with Ibram Kendi and Jason Reynolds. And then I just kind of went on my, my, my way with my life, doing the various things that I'd been doing in the field of education until last summer when I got a phone call that rocked my, my world. Um, and it was an amazing editor from Little Brown who edited Stamped by Jason Reynolds. And she said, I have something to ask you and it will require your great discretion. And Trisha, this we, we were in the thick of IREL 2020. <laughs> so it was killing me not to be able to talk to you about this. But essentially she said that Ibram and, and Jason were in conversation about how powerful it would be if stamps were adapted for younger readers and that they'd be honored if I would consider doing this. My entire equilibrium shifted. I had not written for children before, you know, not not in that way. I've written books for educators, curriculum for educators to teach children, academic articles, papers, and a dissertation. But I have to tell you, this frightened me more than any of that combined. What yeah. was frightening about it? So there were a couple of things. This is a work of two literary geniuses. And this was a very high stakes way to enter into writing for kids. So I had to battle the intimidation of changing the work of a literary giant, that is Jason Reynolds, but also making sure that I could preserve his work in there. But essentially my job was to alter it, to change it. And I had to battle a lot of inner thinking, like, who am I to be doing this? Who am I to be doing this? And who am I to mess with perfection? Um, so that was really hard. He created this, this powerful vision for how uh, a book like this could exist in the world for young adult readers. And so I definitely tried to preserve as much of that roadmap as I could. Also hard was, you know, Ibram Kendi, another genius, right? And making sure I wasn't watering down his content that he has gifted the world with, right? This is a huge part of his legacy and I didn't want to mess that up. And I also had to try to find my own voice in this work and think about what I could contribute and how to locate myself in this. Um, so those were, those were some challenges. Yeah. So I remember I was talking to you after, well, first of all, you wrote that book in a matter of months, right? I mean, that was <laughs> where, where and when and how did you write mm. this book, yeah. do all the professional development that you do and be the director of, you know, diversity at Teachers College Reading Writing Project? How did you do all of that? Yeah, yeah. I didn't sleep. <laughs> I mean, that's the answer. Like there's, there's no magic. I, I, I did not sleep. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote this book across three seasons summer, fall, and winter in my sunroom <laughs> and we're surrounded by nature. And that was important because, you know, I was writing during times of great unrest. We had a global pandemic that was disproportionately um, impacting the lives of Black and brown people in, in the United States and, and including my own family. 
There was, you know, the the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter uprising, a contentious presidential election. <laughs> there was a lot of noise in the background and it felt really heavy. So I think being in that sunroom was like a kind of bomb for me. And I just, I wrote early in the mornings, you know, 5.36 until about one o'clock. And interestingly, I did a lot of the work on the weekends. Um, that's when I felt like I had the clarity because as you said, I am the director of diversity and equity at the Teachers College Reading Writing Project, was a new position um, for the project, a new position for me trying to build this from the ground up plus the other things that I do, it was a lot to do in the week. So I wrote on the weekends and then during the week, I kind of revised and looked for through lines and made plans for the extended writing that I would do over the weekend. So those were, those were some, some when I wrote and where I wrote uh, mm. to your question. I'm wondering, you spoke a little bit about some of the challenges of writing this book and I can only imagine the, um, what you said, the the weight of, you know, adapting the work of these two geniuses, right? And like, I, I don't even, I don't even know. I mean, you were in conversation with Jason, I imagine, and really going through everything. You know, it's interesting. They gave me a lot of space. Okay. I didn't hear from them. I heard oh. Jason at the, at the top. And then I think maybe one more time and then, and then towards the end. Um, but okay. really, really gave me a lot of room. And he says that Ibram did the same for him. Ibram, mm -hmm. Ibram said, you know, here's kind of the, the big outline that you must include, but how you go about doing it, he was like, I, I just gave him space. And they, they did the same for me. And again, that was beautiful, but also terrifying, just terrifying. And, and my early drafts were completely crap. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> some feedback from Jason is like, okay, you, you got to work this out. <laughs> you know? And I was like, yep, yep, got to work that out. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was, it was, it was terrifying, but I kept telling myself, you are Sonia Cherry Paul and you do brave things. <laughs> like my <monster>. Affirmations. Affirmations. <laughs> I'm wondering what, um, there's a, you have this wonderful metaphor in, throughout the book about the rope. And I'm wondering where in the process that that took shape, you know, was that an early thing and then you had to work it out or was, did that come very late? How did, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, that came later. Um, that's a good question. Um, so I had written, you know, I think it was probably the first draft of this and I got towards the end and I was just like, I could feel like this was not, it was not uh, landing in a way that I thought it needed to land for young children. And so we, those of us who teach English, you know, we know the power of figurative language, right? And what that does. And I was like, I need, I need something here that's going to be the, this through line, this hook that's going to help us move through this. And so I wanted to think about something ordinary something that, you know, young kids would be familiar with. That's just a part of their, their lives. And I had tried a couple of things. I think I had like a bicycle sort of thing in my head on a separate draft that I was working through and it was not working. And I, I landed upon rope and that was kind of scary because, you know, when you talk, when you think about rope and you think about racism, <laughs> like, like I'm thinking about lynching <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is evoking a kind of violence um, that is truthful, 
And yet I'm working with young children. How do I navigate that? And so I just literally started to think and, and to myself, like, what are all the ways that I can think about rope in very childlike way? What do kids think about when they think about rope? Um, and so at first I was like, no, I don't know if I can do this. And then I was like, no, I think it does work because yeah, part of rope is that, you know, it can be a weapon. So I leaned into the discomfort of it. And, um, and that's, that's when I was able to sort of work on that second draft and work it in. And then subsequent drafts were like just trying to tighten, make the chapter shorter so that, you know, with young children, you know, to be sitting there reading pages and pages and pages of, of work that's so heavy, that's not going to work. So those were some of the things that, um, that I was thinking about. But yeah, it was exciting to, to think through the rope analogy and, and to, to realize that it could be a powerful metaphor that goes across this book. It's so tangible. Like kids understand that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then of course the wonderful illustrations throughout where in the process did the illustrations come, come into play? Yeah. Those came in pretty quickly, pretty quickly. I was, I was asked, I was charged with thinking about what illustrations could be and, um, you know, and in what chapters, even as the chapters were evolving, <laughs> like, like, you know, they kept changing and merging and, and shifting. Um, but I was, I needed to get uh, a list of some of the ideas that would be something for Rochelle to start working on. So I was working and she could be working. It wasn't like, let me finish working and now she could work. No, we had to be working at the same time. So that was really stressful, like making decisions around that. But, you know, but we did and and it worked out. So I'm so grateful and excited about what she's done in this book. I think it should be on t-shirts. I feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I want it on pencil cases. I want it yeah. on t-shirts. I, you know, I mean, I just love her work. Yeah, it's beautiful. The whole thing is, I mean, we've been talking about the process of the book and I think so much, I mean, there's the final product, the beautiful final product, but it's so interesting to always hear about the love and care and process that went into the final pages. Um, so thank you for sharing um, some of that magic that went, magic and work that went on behind the scenes. When we think about Stamped for Kids, why, I'm thinking about two audiences in particular. I'm thinking about um, the audience of, well, there's three audiences actually. There's the primary audience of kids, but there's also the parents who might read it with their kids. And then there's also teachers who might use it in classrooms. Um, could you talk about um, those two different I guess, reading experiences, one parent and child and one teacher and student, and um, maybe provide some either guidance or, or thinking behind how you might use Stamp for Kids in either one of those situations. Well, you know, it's interesting when we think about identities and our, our, our overlapping um, and multiple identities. You know, I wrote this adaptation as a Black woman, as a Black woman who's a mother, and a Black woman who's a mother and a teacher. And so I very much carried all of that with me into into this process. So as a mother, I kept thinking, you know, what do I need to do in order to do this work well? As a mother, I was centering, and, and as a teacher, I was imagining Black children as as the audience. And I know that the audience is all children and we want all children reading this book, but I really needed to think particularly of Black children. 
So I was thinking there's several things I'm going to need to do in order to do this work well. I was thinking about, you know, I needed to tell the truth, you know, as I was raising awareness about the history of race and racism um, to young readers for whom this might be the first time that they're learning about this, right? So there's that thinking, right? This child um, and who they are and how they would experience this as they're reading stamped for kids. And I also wanted to affirm blackness, right? Um, even as young readers were, you know, are, are gonna be reading and learning really hard truths that there was never a plan for, for black people to be fully free in the United States. That's really the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and as they're learning that, how do I also affirm Blackness. So will kids see, as Dr. Rudin Sims Bishop says, will they see mirrors? Will they see themselves reflected in, in powerful, humane ways? And I wanted to make sure that readers felt hope, you know, that, that children would feel um, that people and circumstances could change um, and to make visible the people and the work of, of anti-racists who can, you know, be guideposts in our lives today. So I thought a little bit, a lot about that for my mother hat, um, for my black mother hat. And in terms of, you know, as a, as a black teacher, I think it's important to know for educators, no matter where I go, when I speak with children about race, even, and I've been doing that before Stamped for Kids, they always want to talk about this. Their questions are insightful. They want to learn about it. They want the truth. And they know that adults are holding back on the truths about race and racism in this country. They know it. And as author Carol Boston Weatherford has said, they can handle it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, for teachers, I, I wanted them to understand that an anti-racist future is possible when we lean into those unsettling truths of the past rather than away from it. And it's the only way we're going to heal. Um, and we've all been harmed by racism. And the way to heal is to tell the truth. So I think these are important reasons for both audiences to read Stand for Kids with Children. I can imagine, like, as, as a teacher myself and as a parent, um, you know, I think about what you said there, tell the truth. And that um, I think, you know, we talk about racism, um, obviously, as the, um, you know, this blueprint for oppression and all oppressive systems. Mm -hmm. And I also think about how it intersects with things like adultism, feeling like children are less capable than they are. And they're, they're so much wiser and we don't give them the credit that they really deserve and have earned even in their short lives. And given that, and um, I'm thinking about that and giving kids credit, it seems like right now we're in this moment where there's all this resistance, primarily on the part of adults, um, to any discussions of race and racism. Like right now, the conversations are really around anti-anti-racism, anti which is a double negative. There's <laughs> another word for anti-anti-racism. <laughs> um, 
and all this anti-CRT and, you know, I was just listening to a podcast from the New York Times talking about, like, you know, this is all a proxy for really just a catch-all term that anyone can use to just basically halt and stop discussions. And I'm thinking about um, Dr. Carol Anderson and her book, White Rage, and how the trigger for white rage is Black advancement. And what white rage looks like is using the systems and structures and laws and institutions in order to... Um, have power and stay in power. Mm -hmm. And if we think about curriculum and conversational space, and now you're going to bring a book like Stanford Kids into the classroom and take up curricular space, like that is, that's black advancement. That's a threat. And therefore we must pass laws in many different states to prevent and, and write the laws in such a way that it's, will inspire and really in, and invoke fear in among school districts and teachers from even touching the subject. So given this, this context and given what we know that kids can handle, how would you respond to this pushback? How would, what would be, you know, how, I mean, there are teachers who are listening to us right now and parents, how would you respond to this? And like, if I'm, if let's say I'm a parent who wants to advocate for this in my school district, what's my argument? Or if I'm a teacher who wants to make this argument, what would you, what would you offer? What advice would you offer in light of everything going on? I think the first thing is, is folks need to really educate themselves. You know, I think we, you know, Trisha, you and I have talked about this sort of, I don't know, um, move toward anti-intellectualism. And by intellectualism, I don't mean elitism, right? One can be well-schooled. That doesn't mean that they're well-educated. Um, so I'm talking about educate yourself by actually, you know, reading um, and, and finding out the truth instead of just listening to sound bites and running with them, running with it. I think it's important for parents and, and educators also to know that there's really never been a time in this nation when truth telling hasn't been met with pushback, right? There's a legacy in the United States of masking the truth to serve the interests of the dominant majority. You know, there's this country masked the truth about, for example, smoking to serve the interests of those who profited greatly from it, right? The filming industry, politicians, right? It's outrageous to think that people would push back against the claim that smoking is bad for our health. But this is a country that did that. This is a country that masks the truths about the dangers of, of football, right? So author uh, Malcolm Gladwell has spoken about both of these examples, the great lengths that powerful forces of this country take to continue doing things that harm citizens of the nation. So I think an essential question that it's important for parents to ask of teachers or administrators if they are pushing back against teaching and talking about race and racism in the classroom is the one that we ask in the Institute for Racial Equity and Literacy. Who benefits and for what purpose, right? And when we ask that question and really do the work, the reading, the listening, to learn will discover, folks will discover, if they didn't know before, that it's intentional to misrepresent um, critical race theory and what teachers are and are not teaching. Because first of all, what K through 12 teacher is teaching critical race theory? That's just not what's happening. So critical race theory is being intentionally misrepresented by those 
who have not read the works of Black legal scholars who developed this theory, such as Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and Patricia Hill Collins, and those who continue to push this theory forward today, such as Tara Yoso um, and others, they haven't read any of these folks. They don't know what, what are in the articles and books and just the decades of scholarship around this if people really want to read it. Those who are speaking the loudest are, are weaponizing misinformation and using their power to do what you said, Tricia, to drive policies and practices and education uh, against teaching about race and racism. And ironically, this is exactly what critical race theory invites us to do, right? To take a look at why in a country that has had a civil rights movement um, focused on addressing the nation's grave racial inequalities, there still continues to be such gaping inequalities, right? To examine the laws that uphold these inequalities. So it's ironic that we're passing policies to do this. And that's exactly what critical race theory is about. Like, let's look at this stuff. Mm -hmm. So to deny critical race theory is to deny racism in housing, po policing, education, healthcare, all of our institutions is to deny facts, which is pretty convenient for those who don't want to confront this in the first place. So it's a way to just bolster the false belief that um, these inequalities exist because either A, as Dr. Kendi says, that um, there's something inherently wrong with Black and Brown people that that white people have more because they are more and black people have less because they have they they are less or there's some invisible force that we just can't seem to name or put our finger on um we just don't know why black and brown people in society are having a vastly different experience from from white people it's it's to deny that this is all happening it's willful ignorance and so what i would say um, I'll just get off my my train a little bit and try to answer. <laughs> what what which is what can educators do to teach the truth, and what can parents and caregivers do to to advocate for this right to teach stamped for kids and to just advocate for um, teaching and talking about race and racism. Well, first of all, we all need to care and challenge this pushback because it's wrong, it's immoral, and we need to ask ourselves, you know, what's next. We, we see the way critics, for example, are, have operated from a global warming isn't real stance, right? And we can ask who benefits from that. You know, what's next? Are we going to teach lies such as the Holocaust wasn't real? We've certainly seen people try to do that, that the Japanese internment wasn't real. Who benefits from these lies and how? This needs to be the question that we insist leaders or educators who feel like they're going to, who we feel are, are, are sort of buying into this critique, we need them to sit with that question and, and, and insist that that be the moral compass from which they operate. We need to ask educational leaders to make, make it clear what they stand for. This certainly will not stop resistance, but transparency matters. And we can insist that educators, hey, they can follow in the footsteps of Black women. Black women mm -hmm. who did what they needed to do under the most oppressive circumstances. They have demonstrated, Black women educators have demonstrated time and time again that they're willing to put something on the line to do what is right. So I want, I want 
families to ask educators, and we know predominantly educators in the country are white. That's the overwhelming, you know, group of, of educators. Those who see what's happening and they know this is wrong, what are you willing to put on the line to do what's right? Because we know Black women are willing to. We've seen it. Yeah, I think that part there about what are you willing to put on the line is the question for many white educators and honestly, white parents. You know, I think about how um, this movement of anti-anti-racism folks is very um, organized and they have they have conviction for sure. They are. And, you know, and I, and we have to ask ourselves, where is the conviction on the other side? Because I do believe that there are more people than not who want to be on the right side of history, who want kids to be affirmed, who want to tell the truth, even if it makes them uncomfortable and they just don't know how. But are you showing up to school board meetings? Are you look, taking a look at your child's reading list and asking questions about how, you know, which books they're being taught and how history is being told? I just, I just saw, in fact, on, um, on social media, someone posted the, the um, opening pages from a Louisiana t- history textbook. I don't know if you saw that or not. No. And it, oh, it, um, a, a Louisiana history textbook and the opening pages of how um, the Civil War and secession is described. And wouldn't you know that the the anecdote, the narrative to introduce children into the story of secession is centers on um, the effects of it on a white girl mm. in the South and the effects of it on her family mm. and how she her brothers were law. Lo- like it was just very clear the agenda. Right. So when people talk about, you know, take politics out of the classroom as if there's that as if they've never already been in the classroom and and this idea that there's an agenda now, there's always been an agenda that schooling has never been neutral. And so I love what you said, follow in the footsteps of black women. What Mm -hmm. are you willing to put on the line? Because if you it's it's apathy, apathy and ignorance and not knowing what's going on. How many people were surprised in the last year that racism exists in the way that it does. Right. And that is a function of not paying attention. And you know, Trisha, what you're saying about the narrative, it's so, it's so important that that you're right, that the people that you and I both believe really want this work to be ushered in, that they are speaking louder. They're not speaking as loud as, as these critics. And these critics will continue to work to have educators teaching like that opening scene in uh, in uh, in that textbook. They'll have educators teaching that slavery wasn't a cruel and horrific system, that enslavers were kind and loving. They'll have educators teaching that Black people who were enslaved were happy and cared for, that Native Americans wanted to give up their land. Look at the, the treaties they signed. This was all just an agreement, part of a deal. Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, right? They will have, they will have it so that this is what educators are teaching. And so what we need is for people who see this to speak louder and think about what they're willing to, to risk. And I'm not necessarily saying you need to sacrifice your job, although black women have been willing to do that and have done that <laughs> time again. But but I do want people to sacrifice your comfort. In the name of niceness and kindness and get alongness, there's way too much quietness. And we need to we need to be loud and we need to be operating not just from our sphere of influence, but w- from what's right beyond it. 
It's basic. I, I kind of think about silence as consent to mm-hmm. the dominant narrative right now, right? And so when you're silent, you're consenting to those who would not be silent and who are powerful and will and who are well resourced, right? And organized. I'm just thinking about all the again, like the work has to happen, like you said, in all the different spheres of influence that you're in. Like if I if I'm on a Facebook group with parents, like and I see these things. And, and if I'm in a Facebook group with, with a parent group and I know I see something that a parent says, like in that moment, I'm like, well, I don't want to cause trouble mm-hmm. or I don't want to do X, Y, or Z. This sure. kid plays on my son's soccer team. Like there's all this. And that's how that, those are the structures in which like, those are the social connections that allow white supremacy to continue yeah. because you're not willing to give up the discomfort you might have on the soccer field with that mom who is going to go to the school board meeting, who's going to cry about, you know, critical race theory. Yeah. And if you're, it doesn't cost until it costs them something mm-hmm. like until it costs them, let's say their social connections or their sense of like, they're, they're going to continue in the way that they are. And the rest of us, you know, will be, will be watching from, unfortunately. So. And I spent so much of my time sacrificing my comfort, you know, it would just be yeah. nice for me to show up once someplace and not have to sort of think about all the walls I need to break through. I would like to just hang out at the water cooler and just have, you know, <laughs> that, right? But no, yeah. it's like this really, really, really deeply matters. And and if it really, really deeply matters, if people are claiming that, then then I need I need your your actions to to live up to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I really, I've been thinking very deeply as a parent. I mean, a, a lot of my work has been in the classroom and my relationships with kids, but as my kid, my own children have been moving through school, I've been thinking, what are the ways that I'm, I am and am not pushing back in my own community? And why is that, you know? So I know a lot of, you know, teachers and educators here, you know, you're here and you're listening and you're, you're thinking about your teacher hat, but racism exists outside your classroom. It's in your neighborhood, right? Because most likely you're living in a segregated neighborhood because that's all of the United States right now. So, all right. Thinking about the reception to this book, I know it's, I, I don't, I don't want to spoil anything, but I know it's got at least one starred review. No, um, two. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was official and I could say that yet. Okay. All right. It was announced today. Okay, good. So two starred reviews, which is amazing. Um, congratulations. And, you know, given, you know, since the publication of the book, and as you've been sharing this book with kids and parents and teachers, can you tell us about um, maybe a memorable comment or feedback or just a conversation you've had with anyone who's read this book or experienced it that just sticks into your mind, like something that they've said? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start off with kids. As I said, you know, before they ask such insightful questions and I'm going to try to my best to remember some, they're all insightful kids, young, young kids asking, you know, was there racism when you were born? (laughs) You know, just trying to, trying to put it together. I'm like, yep, since the beginning of this country. And I'm- That's such a sweet question. Question. And I, part of me is like, do they think I'm like 400, 500 years old? Is your birthday the 1619? Right. Right. Um, 
Such a sweet question. You know, um, a, a middle schooler asked, how can a book like Stamped, and he was talking about um, Jason Reynolds' um, Stamped, be one of the top banned books in the country and also one of the New York Times best-selling books? Mm-hmm. How can these things both be true, right? And it's like, you can just see kids like grappling with this. And the question that uh, affected me deeply recently was a young girl, I think she was uh, third grade or fourth grade. And she said to me, you know, Dr. Cherry Paul, will you please, 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 please write a book about what's happening to Asian American and Pacific Islanders, a book like Stamped, but about what's happening to Asian American and Pacific Islanders. Would you please, please, please do that? Which, you know, just, you know, I, I, I just said to her, that book needs to exist in the world. There needs to be more than one book that addresses that, that exists in the world. And I just talked to her about how I'm not the person to write that book, how we want that person to be someone who identifies as Asian American or Pacific Islander, because they'll be able to write that with a level of nuance that I don't have and a lived experience that will come through and that we could brainstorm together some authors who we thought could do that work. And then I just said, but you could write that book and I would buy that book and I would tell everyone to buy that book. And so it just moved me because I keep thinking about all of the the children who have racial and cultural identities that are silenced in education and how they're basically just asking, will you witness me, right? Just Mm. witness me. And, and, and they should be, you know, and I want them to be. And so that stays with me. In terms of, you know, teachers, I get a lot of how can I do this work when I don't have the knowledge I need to do the work? Um, I get that question a lot. And I don't know if, if it's because I have a doctorate. I don't know if it's, you know, something else, but there's a, I recognize it as a kind of resistance, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's not a, Uh, overt, you know, direct sort of, you know, critical race theory, anti, anti (laughs) anti-racist pushback resistance, but it's a kind of resistance because I've shared with you, my friend, my shiplap paradox. (laughs) I know. I've shared with you how, you know, shiplap took the world by storm when Chip and Joanna Gaines on Fixer Upper on HGTV you know, first started talking about this. Five, six years ago, nobody was talking about shiplap. And then they started talking about it and people went nuts. And they watched the show. They've made Chip and Joanna Gaines so successful. They've got their own network. People went to their hardware stores. It was just like, everybody had to have shiplap, right? They're buying books. They're looking at YouTube videos. When white people want to learn something, (laughs) they know how to learn that thing yeah they're highly motivated and i keep saying same same (laughs) right same same you want you feel you have a lack of knowledge well there are books podcasts webinars videos right uh institutes there's a lot you could do to learn that thing I'm imagining a, a tweet or a t-shirt that's like wishing white people would learn racism the way they learn about shiplap. <laughs> Boom. 
<laughs> oh, the same that's, energy. That's, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And, and I would say for parents, you know, I would say the thing that stood out for me the most recently in, in conversations with parents is I was having a conversation with white parents and a white mother said to me, in every story, there, there are good guys and bad guys. And I don't want to teach my children about the truth about race and racism because I don't want them to think that all white people are, are bad. And, you know, I was like, okay, we're creating a brave space. Thank you for speaking your truth, right? So it was like, I respect you for saying it. Now let's look at this. There's so much to unpack there, right? You are okay with your kids thinking that there's something inherently wrong with black and brown people. You're okay with that part, just as long as they're not thinking that there's anything wrong with white people. First of all, this work is not about saying that all white people are bad guys. And, and importantly is, you know, all stories don't have to be that way. There can be, you know, good guys, there can be bad guys, and there can be the truth, right? And why don't we all just get on the side of the truth? So I would say those are some most memorable things that have conversations I've had recently. Well, and also what's interesting about that question that the that the mother posed that she doesn't want her children to think that they're the bad guys. Mm-hmm. There are many stories of white people being white in many different ways in the world. I don't I I don't watch there was a that funny there's a funny um the funny um anecdote in Chimamanda Adichie's Danger of a Single Story where she talks about, you know, people saying, Oh, it's such a shame that all African men are violent. And then she's and she said that she had watched American Psycho and how it was such a shame that all, you know, American men were like psychopaths. <laughs> and you like you would never draw that conclusion because there's so many there's a there's what um Viet Thanh Nguyen says is a plentitude. Then there's a, there's narrative plenitude when it comes to stories about white people being white many different ways, and we need more stories of people of color being who they are in all the different ways they can be instead of single narratives that can be damaging. And that goes back to the Achibe um, quote in his book about the lions. Yes, the mm-hmm. in proverb. I don't know the country. I keeps trying to search the country of origins um, of that of that proverb, but until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Yeah. And and she wants white people to be glorified. And this country, right? If we look at the facts, this country is looking to glorify the actions of white people through the narratives we tell about the history of race and racism. Lincoln freed the slaves. Right. We, like we just just think how we talk about these things. Right. Well, I think the the interesting thing is that when she when she's talking about she doesn't want her, her children to. And, and that is a lot of the resistance around this. I think white people, white parents and white teachers feeling like I don't want white children to feel shame. And they don't they can learn the truth without feeling ashamed like that. That is po- that is actually possible to do. And I think. What's deeper than that? I actually don't think it's about that. I think it's when they find out what race and racism is, will my children look at me and see the ways in which I have participated and will they judge me? And I and because you start to realize, wow, I am complicit and I have, you know, and now and when you have knowledge, you have a responsibility to do things. Yep. And there's nothing, and I think as every parent, or I don't want to make generalizations, but I know as a parent for myself, being judged by your children, I mean, yeah, I just, and I don't think you want your five-year-old looking at you and asking you tough questions about the way, the choices you've made. Right. 
And then, as you said, feeling like now I have to do something and possibly, right? And 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 I don't want to do that thing. I don't want to give up some stuff. I don't want to do the things that are that are necessary to try to bring about true racial justice. It's interesting because I think with kids, like I'll give a this is not the same at all. So I don't want to say it is, but it, on the same along the same lines, like I was thinking about how um, when I told my children about um, Chick Fil A and how they the the, corp, the company you know um, donates to all these anti LGBTQ causes. They, now my children loved Chick-fil-A, <laughs> but they loved it. But then they were like, well, then why do we go there? We should stop going there. And it was a switch. Yeah. They said, we should, we should not support them anymore. It was so much easy. Like they, it was easy for them. It was right. like, we don't need the chicken that bad. I'm like, oh, you, I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, and there, there are many other ways that we're participating. I mean, you could go down a list of, you know, corporations that have problems, but yeah. they, they knew and they were like, that's something we can do. But I mean, imagine, it's not everything, but imagine yeah. if we approached it that way for racism, think about how many corporations are taking part in um, supporting racist policies and, and providing, you know, uh, funds to politicians to, to create racist laws. Imagine if we all were like, oh, we shouldn't support them. We should just stop shopping there. Where is that same kind of conviction? Yeah. Where is that? Yeah. Why are we think, okay with that? We're just like, oh, well, it's, that's just the way it is. And, and you know, I think, you know, people make choices and we live in a system that is, it's hard to untangle, but you can untangle, like going back to your, the rope analogy, ropes get tangled up, right? And there can be knots in them and you can, we have to work to pull them apart and untangle. Um, and that, that is a lot, that's a lot of the work that we can do together. Yeah. And it's important to just start, right? Yes, begin. Just begin. So on that note, um, I always love talking to you, friend. And thank you, everyone who happens to be listening. Um, please go out and get stamped for kids. Bring it, read it with your children. You know, and I think for teachers out there, reading it with your children could be a great first step. If before, you know, it could be practice for what you might do in the classroom, right? Like it's. I think it's such important work. Um, and, you know, I was a high school teacher and I think that some of the things, we always talk about learning and unlearning and relearning, but what if we just learn from the beginning the truth? So thank you, Sonia. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our thanks to Trisha Ibarvia and Dr. Sonia Cherry-Paul for their time today. If you'd like to learn more about their upcoming virtual institute through Heinemann Professional Development Services called IREL, we invite you to visit the Heinemann PD Services webpage. You can visit blog.heinemann.com. And while you're there, you can learn more about Sonia and Trisha's other work, including Sonia's recent adaptation of Stamped for Kids and some details about Trisha's upcoming book from Heinemann. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.